0: Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Myself, my name is Kevin Hill, and I'm a member of this community. I'm teaching today not as part of the pastoral staff, but just uh, sort of a visiting scholar. I have a PhD in theology, and I work here in Calgary in oil and gas. And if you have kids in the kids program, my wife Ashley is with them right now helping lead that. Ashley and I consider this parish our church home, our community. I feel privileged to be with you this morning. And for those who are new, Scott Wall is our pastor here, and we've loaned him out to Kensington, and he'll be back next week to continue teaching. This is week three of our summer series on the Psalms. The Psalms are located in the middle of your Bible, and they're inspired poetic prayers of the human heart. At times they can give voice to our deepest thoughts and feelings. And This is an ancient perspective. One of my favorite theologians, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, who lived in the fourth century, he said this about the Psalms. Here is a strange thing about the Psalms. In the other books of scripture, we read or we hear the words of holy people as belonging only to those who spoke them. But in the Psalms, it is as though it were my own words that I read. And anyone who hears these words is moved at heart as though the words were voiced for him or her in their deepest thoughts. So the point is, the Psalms can be your prayer book. Whatever is on your heart is probably also in the Psalms. Two weeks ago, Scott kicked off the series by looking at Psalm 13. And Scott highlighted how the Psalms offer us a model for being honest with God. We also saw that the Psalms can inspire empathy and action for those facing injustice. Then last week, Jeremy from Kensington was here and he showed us how the poetic device of parallelism works. In parallelism, the poet makes a point and then makes a corresponding point right after it. And parallelism also occurs in English, poetry and lyrics. For example, did you know it occurs in maybe the longest English song ever written? This is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friends. (laughs) The second line says the same thing as the first, but it just adds a few details. And you're going to see this throughout the Psalms. This is how Hebrew poetry works. When you do see this, take a moment to stop and consider what's new, what's being added, and what difference does it make? That's a key to unlocking the depth of meaning in the Psalms. Jeremy also helped us see the value of making a long series of small steps in the same direction. As we look at Psalm 26 today, we're going to return to the subject of walking in the right direction. We're going to ask, how can we stay dedicated to this path when the going gets tough? Let's begin with prayer. Gracious God, We thank you for summer. Thank you not only for the warm weather, but also the change of rhythm that summer brings. It reminds us to slow down, to get outside, to connect with others, and to connect with ourselves, and make the most of each day. As we do so, help us become aware that you are with us. And with summer upon us, Some of us are feeling particularly well. We thank you for this, but some are less fortunate. We pray for those who are sick or lonely or in need. We pray for those who are hurting, for those in crisis, and for those who are barely hanging on. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Holy Spirit, you know our hearts. You know exactly where we are and what we need. You are the Lord and the giver of life. As we study your Psalms this summer, meet us and lead us into new life. We pray all this in the strong and loving name of Jesus. Amen. So today, we're discussing chiastic structures walking a path, dedication to the path, sloths, and glimpses of love. And if you're intrigued about what sloths have to do with psalms, hang tight. It's all going to make sense, I promise. So on to Psalm 26. During my undergraduate degree, I took an early morning course on the book of Isaiah, Isaiah and my professor introduced me to all sorts of great ideas, including things like using biblical commentaries and how to do advanced word studies. But what I remember most about him was his unorthodox breakfasts. You see, sometimes he forgot to have breakfast or he was just too busy, so he'd show up to our morning class with a hungry stomach. And then what he'd do is he would raid the staff room, fridge, or the kitchen. And so sometimes he'd show up to class with a cup of soup which wasn't too weird, or a box of crackers. But the time that sticks out the most in my memory is what happened one 8 a.m. morning. I'm sitting in class with the other students, waiting for the professor to show up, and suddenly he bursts in, he hurries to his lectern, and he starts unwrapping an ice cream sandwich. And then he went into a mini-lecture on how all the food groups are in an ice cream sandwich. Think about it. You've got dairy. You've got grains. There's probably vegetable oil. That's vegetables. (laughs) I don't know. That's where he went. But the point is, images often stick with you longer than words. So today we're going to explore some images from Psalm 26. And first, I want to give you an image to help you understand and remember the structure of the psalm. Last week, Jeremy also talked about the poetic device called chiastic structures. In a chiastic structure, the poem's first component corresponds to the second last com- sorry, the poem's first component corresponds with the last component. The second component corresponds with the second, last component, and then you've got the middle, which is usually the most important point. So this is kind of abstract, so let's make it more concrete, more visual. A chiastic structure is kind of like that freezer burnt ice cream sandwich my professor pulled out of the fridge. It has a layer of frost on the top and the bottom, a cookie as the second layer from the top and the bottom, and an ice cream in the middle. And the middle is the best part, that's the ice cream. A chiastic structure in poetry works the same way. You have layers of corresponding ideas and the core is in the middle. So Psalm 26 has a chiastic structure. And I've divided it up into five stanzas, which I've given headings, and uh, that's a way that you can see exactly how it works. By the way, I'm using the English standard version of the Bible. So here's the Psalm. And I'm going to get old school and actually read out of a paper Bible (laughs) Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, and I do not consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked." I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners or my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground, and the great assembly, in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. So as you can see, the psalmist starts out by stating that he walked with integrity. And then he contrasts his life with that of the wicked. And then in the middle of the psalm, he worships in the house of God. In other words, in the temple. And from here, the psalmist tells the same story, but in reverse. He doesn't want to be grouped with the wicked. He wants his life to be in contrast with theirs. And then he ends by recommitting himself to walking with integrity. So there you have it. There's Psalm 26's chiastic structure. There's your freezer burnt ice cream sandwich. And this overview should give you a sense of the psalm's content and an ability to see how the various parts relate to one another. For the rest of our time together, we're going to focus on the psalm's poetic imagery and its narrative. And these elements will help us appreciate some of the poem's depth of meaning. So let's begin by looking halfway through verse 1, where we see the psalmist talking about walking on a path. Chronologically speaking, this is where the psalmist's story really begins. The NIV renders this, I've led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and I have not faltered. As I mentioned, the version on the screen is the ESV, and there's a reason for this. While I love the NIV and I use it almost every day, here it hides some of the imagery in verses 1 and 11. In the phrase as the NIV translates it, blameless life, the word life literally means to walk and figuratively means to live. The psalmist being a poet would have been aware of this double meaning. And when we use the language of walking, the imagery of the psalm becomes more alive, which is surely what the psalmist would have intended. So I think verses 1 and 11 are better rendered in the ESV. I have walked in my integrity, and I shall walk in my integrity. Last week when Jeremy was here, he talked a bit about the path that we choose to walk on. He was talking about Psalm 1, and one of the points is that the direction you are pointing, the path you're on, it's much more important than exactly where you are on that path right now. Think about it, you've gotten to this point in your life through a series of small steps in a particular direction. Now, does that mean you are in control of everything? No, of course not. But in your work and in your relationships, in all parts of your life, you are where you are largely because of small steps that you took over a long time. And this means that the direction you chose matters and your dedication to that path matters. In Psalm 26, this wisdom is repeated. The psalmist says that he's chosen a specific path or direction. For him, integrity. Scholar John Gay explains that the word suggests a positive wholeness of commitment. So the psalmist isn't saying that he's perfect or that he's without sin. He's saying, I'm dedicated to my journey of faith. Or perhaps, I'm dedicated to the path of following God as best as I can. I was talking to Jeremy about, Jeremy about this, this week and he also reminded me that if we're honest, there's probably a little bit of self-preservation going on here. I mean, who would honestly say that they lived a blameless life? But that's okay. God isn't offend, offended by a little bit of hubris. In fact, sometimes we need to speak honestly about how we feel, even if it isn't completely objective. Remember that you don't always need to be objective or dispassionate in your prayers. Sometimes honest is better than accurate. And what I've said about the psalmist's journey is all rather abstract at this point, isn't it? But Hebrew poetry is concrete. So let's try to get more concrete. Try to picture this. Picture a pathway with a series of ascents and descents, with twists and turns and blind corners and exhilarating views, the psalm is saying that's what life is like. And the psalmist says that through it all, he's committed to his direction. He doesn't avoid wicked people or people going in other directions whom he encounters along the way. But he also doesn't give up on his path. When we look at the narrative or the story of this psalm, What's really interesting is what happens next. We don't know the precise details, but most scholars think that the psalmist suffered some kind of terrible injustice. Maybe the psalmist was falsely accused of something with severe consequences, or maybe he was slandered or even attacked. Maybe he was betrayed by someone close. We don't know the details and we don't need to, that the psalmist was seriously wronged. And it's here that we find the psalmist's true colors. Robert McKee, who teaches screenwriting, says this about character. True character is revealed in the choices a human, me- a human being makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, the truer the choice to the person's essential nature. So what does the psalmist do when he's slandered, when he's wrongly accused, when he faces some kind of injustice? He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't return violence with violence or slander with slander. Instead, he turns to God. He says, vindicate me, O Lord. He asks this because he trusts that God is just, that God is good, and that God knows all things. My wife and I have three daughters. We've got twin three-year-olds and a five-year-old, and for the most part, they are wonderful kids, but like all siblings, they fight from time to time. I mean, who doesn't? And one of their favorite tactics is to accuse each other of being a bad guy, and that's a quote. So, recently we were in our van with the girls in the back seats when one of our younger twins, Winnie, accused the older, Piper, and she said, Piper, you're a bad guy. And without missing a beat, Piper responded, I'm not a bad guy. God knows everything, and he knows I'm not a bad guy. The psalmist has that same conviction. God knows my heart. He knows I'm innocent, and in his time, he's going to vindicate me. God is going to intervene on behalf of injustice. This Psalm anticipates one of the promises of the story of Jesus. The innocent will be vindicated. Think about it. Jesus was mocked and beaten and crucified as an innocent man. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead and his his resurrection vindicated him. It showed that he truly was of God. The accusations against him that led to his crucifixion, they were proven false. And His resurrections was the first fruits of God's transformative justice, which will put the world right. If you have been wronged or hurt, remember that God's always working to make all things right. It's just that sometimes we can't imagine exactly what God has in mind, and our version isn't necessarily what He's thinking. Justice is often harder to comprehend than injustice. And also, when we see injustice in this world, consider what Scott taught us two weeks ago. The Psalms invite us to, as Scott said, this is a quote, to pick up, to whatever degree we can and should, the work of justice our world desperately needs. We're called to be partners in God's work of reconciliation and making the world right. So we've seen that the psalmist believes that one day god will vindicate him or bring him justice let's look at what he says next do you remember earlier when we talked about the structure of the psalm it's like an ice cream sandwich the top and the bottom correspond with each other but the middle is the core the core of this psalm occurs in verses six through six through eight and the psalmist writes i wash my hands in innocence and i go about your altar o lord proclaiming your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live and the place where your glory dwells. For much of Israel's history, the temple in Jerusalem was understood to be God's holy dwelling place on earth. In verses 6 through 8, the psalmist speaks of worshiping God in the temple. Hand-washing was a ritual performed by priests and probably also lay people in preparation for worship. And the psalmist washes his hands and then he goes deeper into the temple. Here the psalmist moves about the altar, worshiping, quote, in the house where God lives, the place where his glory dwells. To me, this is the climax of the psalm. Think about it. The psalmist had been seriously wronged and he doesn't let that stop him from walking his path and he doesn't let that stop him from worshiping. The psalmist effectively says that even when things go wrong, or as one author puts it, even when excrement hits the air conditioner, the psalmist will remain dedicated to his path and to his God. I admire the psalmist's dedication. When put under tremendous pressure, he didn't give up. I want to have the same dedication in my life. Maybe you do. Maybe you want that as well. Maybe you want to know God and to love God to such a degree that the next time trouble comes, you will be able to say, like the psalmist, my feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. But how can we do this? How did the psalmist do it? If dedication to our path is strictly a matter of willpower, then frankly, that's not going to work for me. I'm not that strong. And even if I was, is that really what God wants? Worship motivated by a sense of obligation? Let's keep these questions in mind and move to the subject on the outline that some of you have been waiting for. About a month ago, I came across a podcast by Stuff You Should Know called How Sloths Work. And I don't know about you, but I think sloths are awesome. They are super cute, and I just had to listen. But going into the episode, I knew very little about sloths. I knew that they're cute, they eat leaves, and they work at the DMV. So during the episode, (laughs) I learned some new and interesting facts. Did you know that sloths spend up to 90% of their lives hanging upside down? They're upside down when they eat, when they sleep, even when they mate. And they only come down about once a week to answer nature's call. Sloths are also so slow that green algae grows on their fur. And recently scientists discovered that this algae is actually helpful for the sloths. You see, sloth's main food source, leaves, just doesn't have that much nutrition in it. The algae, though, is high in fat, so as the sloths are grooming themselves, they eat the fatty algae, which supplements their diet. The green algae is the sloth's secret energy source. The psalmist also had a secret energy source. The fuel that fires his life of faith can be found in verse 3. I've always been mindful of your unfailing love, and I've lived in reliance on your faithfulness. That's the NIV translation. Unfortunately, again, the NIV has hidden some of the poet's imagery. The word rendered mindful in the Hebrew is actually the word for eyes. So the ESV translates this more literally. It says, your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The ESV's translation restores the poem's imagery, which includes the images of eyes and walking. And now the word in Hebrew for your steadfast love is chesed. This word means more than love. It carries the sense of love, grace, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, and reliability. One scholar wrote an entire book just about this word in the Hebrew Bible, and this is what he concluded. Chesed is an emotion that leads to an activity beneficial to the recipient. It's characteristic of God rather than human beings. It's rooted in the divine nature. So even when God's people are unfaithful and rebellious and unaware of God's love, God continues to direct it towards them. His ultimate aim and his great desire is that his people will repent and return to him. We live in a busy, results-driven, performance-focused culture, don't we? Sometimes this culture carries over into our theology, into how we think about God. Sometimes some of us might think that God's favor depends on our performance you might believe that you need to meet a certain standard for Him to love you. The message of God's love revealed through the Bible and above all through Jesus is countercultural. God loves you unconditionally, and He loved you before you ever took a step towards Him. For some of us, for me sometimes, This is hard to accept because we've been so conditioned to tie our love and our approval into our performance. So coming to accept this might take time as God slowly heals and works in our heart, and as the spirit moves, and that's okay. Remember when I asked if God would want worship motivated by a sense of obligation? I think the answer is that ideally, worship is response-driven. We love God and worship Him in response to Him first loving us. So we're now equipped to answer the other question. How did the psalmist remain committed to his path, to remain committed to where he was going even when the going got tough? The answer is that God's chesed, God's gracious, merciful, compassionate, faithful, reliable, unconditional, unmerited love was ever before His eyes. Now, I want to clarify a few things here. First, I don't think that the psalmist is saying that God was literally all he could think about or focus on. Remember, this is poetry, and poetry speaks figuratively. The psalmist's point is that he didn't go for long periods of time, though, without thinking about God or without catching glimpses of His grace. And second, you might be wondering, is the psalmist referring to a matter of the heart or the mind, to a feeling or a thought, And I think the answer here is both. In verse two, the psalmist asks God to test his heart and his mind. And the psalmist is confident that his heart and his mind will hold up under scrutiny. This is because God's experience of love touches the entire inner person. Sometimes you'll experience this as thoughts or knowledge and other times as feelings. Still other times you'll find that your will and your desires are actually changing or some other part of your inner self is being changed or renewed. And also, all of us have different personality types, don't we? And so the means by which we experience God can differ from person to person. And one more thing, learning to catch glimpses of God's love might not happen overnight. Just like everything else in your life, this too may be something you develop through taking a series of small steps in the same direction. So, the psalmist's point is that when you catch glimpses of this kind of love, your entire person may be changed, renewed, revitalized. You may find that you have new reserves for the road ahead. For the psalmist, knowing and experiencing God as love is the key to the spiritual life. To put this another way, the life of faith is fueled by glimpses of God's love. Let's pray. Loving God, inspire us today, every day, to open ourselves to your presence and your loving kindness. May we see you in our relationships with our family, our friends, and our communities. May we hear the whispers of your spirit when we are alone. May we perceive your grace in creation And may we find that even as we love others, you are at work in us. Fuel our faith with glimpses of your love as it is revealed above all in the face of your Son, Jesus. Through all things, help us say, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. We pray all this in the strong and loving name of Jesus. Amen.